Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, as the post office scandal continues to unfold, the silence from keyboard warriors is deafening. Marina Hyde explores social media's blind spot. Multi-platinum singer and songwriter Kesha discusses her most raw and confrontational album to date. And as the nation witnesses the crowning of a new monarch, Caroline Davies considers the historic coronations that went awry. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, horrific detail piles on horrific detail as the post office inquiry rumbles on. But, observes Marina Hyde, it's barely noticed by those who manufacture online outrage at the drop of a hat. Perhaps this injustice is just not sexy enough. Read by Neve Kuzak. I can't help suspecting that former post office chief executive Paula Venels might have been more publicly vilified if she'd done a bad tweet, rather than merely presided over a firm during the most widespread miscarriage of justice in British history. Forgive the return to this furrow, but no matter how often they are restated, far from often enough, The details of the post office scandal are so incredible as to be almost literally impossible to believe. Put as sparsely as possible, 736 sub-postmasters and postmistresses were prosecuted for theft, fraud and false accounting in their branches between 2000 and 2014. Yet they had done nothing wrong. The fault was with a new computer system designed by Fujitsu and forced onto them by post office management, a system that Top Brass allegedly knew was faulty. The individual stories are horrific. People's lives were ruined. At least four took their own lives. Many were imprisoned, including a teenager. Tech was trusted over humans with unblemished records. As things stand, 
more than a year into the belated inquiry, not a single person has been held to legal account. From Venels to the managerial class of the post office, to Fujitsu, to the civil servants responsible for oversight. Instead, Venels got a CBE, and the rest of the anonymous boss class doubtless joined her in failing upwards on the gravy train. The grim saga rumbles on, with comparatively little coverage given its scale and significance. It was arguably ever thus with all the big beats of this story broken by the likes of Rebecca Thompson at Computer Weekly, the journalist Nick Wallace, Private Eye, and the victims themselves, such as Alan Bates. The Times is currently running an excellent series of articles on where we are now, which has revealed that 59 of the victims have died before the end of the inquiry, while some victims were only allocated £1,000 in legal aid. The post office has spent £100 million on city lawyers. But you have to wonder whether the post office story is somehow not sexy enough for much of a chatterati who prefer their scandals to unfold over a feverish day on Elon Musk's platform and not in unloved inquiry rooms and the anguished testimonies of the likes of Seema Mishra, locked up on her son's tenth birthday in a horrendous jail, where... Among many other horrors, she discovered a prisoner who had taken their own life. She was pregnant and gave birth to her second child wearing an electronic tag. And she's just one of hundreds of victim stories so mind-boggling and frequently tragic that you cannot believe they happened to those most quietly emblematic of local public servants, the British sub-postmaster and postmistress. The post office scandal has never truly seemed to stir the souls of those who regard a day spent online dragging this or that user as activism well spent. This feels symptomatic of a wider issue with what we classify as a campaigning victory these days. The key stages of the post office scandal have had far less coverage and garnered far fewer social media clicks than various comments by, say, Jeremy Clarkson or Gary Lineker. I appreciate it is far, far more difficult to cancel the iniquitous systems that led to the post office horror than it is to cancel someone in public life who you think has said something unacceptable. But it does very much need doing. The fault of systems is far, far more important than the fault of individuals, however much easier to yank down a single person it might be. Getting caught up in endless cycles of calling out might work to punish individuals for their individual infractions, but it doesn't change the bigger, more significant problems, and anyone who thinks it does is kidding themselves, or allowing themselves to be kidded by people who have a vested interest in them not changing things. I know some politicians and some pundits bang on disparagingly about the woke mind virus or whatever, but I often think they must be secretly thrilled with the virtue games of recent times. It really couldn't suit them more. How much better to have people sidelined into endless 24 or 48-hour online meltdowns in which they are either pitted against one another, litigating the narcissism of small differences, the dream, 
or obsessing about one person's transgressions and leaving iniquitous and dysfunctional systems free to sail on regardless. Some of this is thought to be generational, and I have nothing but sympathy for the generations that come after mine, who have been shut out of so much of what they are entitled to, and which most of those who criticise them simply took for granted. My theory is that if you give people absolutely no economic power, they will use what little power they have to lash out in one way or another, and it's pretty hard to blame them for that. The disputed thing that some people call cancel culture is an example of it, and if capitalism's elders and supposed betters really cared so much about stopping it, perhaps they'd think about giving younger people a stake in capitalism, instead of expecting them to abide by a set of rules of a game in which they are not even allowed to be player characters. It might be nice to think it is, but I don't believe that getting angry on Twitter particularly helps anyone other than Elon Musk, or that sitting in judgment on every passing infraction is anything other than a hiding to nothing. It is not affecting change. It is the illusion of affecting change. It is exactly the sort of looking the wrong way that allowed the post office scandal to happen. And if we keep doing it, the people who really run things will keep on getting away with it. That was Hundreds of Lives Ruined, Not a Single Person Held to Account, and Still, Silence on the Post Office Scandal, by Marina Hyde, read by Neve Kuzak. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, she was Pop's biggest party girl, but since accusing her producer of abuse, Kesha has been in limbo, wary of speaking out. Now, on the aptly named gag order, the shackles are off and the bravado has gone. I share a lot of ugly emotions, she tells Michael Cragg, and it's an album quite unlike anything she has released before. Read by Hayley McGee. In April 2020, months after the release of her fourth album, High Road, Kesha had a beautiful and terrifying spiritual awakening. Having spent the early lockdown months paralyzed by anxiety and consumed by the weight of both personal and global trauma, she suddenly felt overwhelmed by so many things I hadn't taken the time to stop and think about, 
One night, after weeks of looking for answers, she started hearing what some might call God, what some might call your higher consciousness, via a two-hour-long, completely sober encounter she initially mistook for a psychotic break. I woke up in the morning and called all my healthcare workers and explained what happened, and they all said, Oh, that's a spiritual awakening. Congratulations. She shakes her head. I was like, What the fuck are you talking about? You're saying what I've been doing therapy for and meditating for and searching for was to have an incredibly surreal, terrifying, nearly psychedelic experience? And they were all like, yep, that's the goal. That night inspired Eat the Acid, the deeply hallucinatory minor key lead single from her Rick Rubin-produced fifth album, Gag Order. I searched for answers all my life, dead in the dark. I saw the light. She sings over wheezing synths and a distant bass rumble that eventually breaks like a clap of thunder. It heralds an album quite unlike anything the 36-year-old L.A. native, born Kesha Rose Siebert, has released before. With this album, I actually got to get really intimate and expose the sides of myself that I'm not the most proud of, she says shuffling for a comfy spot on her bed, her laptop wobbling as she lays down on her side. The ones that I want to never talk about, that I never want to share with the greater public, the ones that are more scary and more vulnerable and more insecure. I share a lot of ugly emotions on this album. Having blazed a trail through the pop cosmos in late 2009 via messy, hedonistic banger TikTok, all smeared glitter, sexual liberation, and talk of brushing her teeth with a bottle of Jack. Kesha, or Kesha with a dollar sign as she was then, was the perfect soundtrack for a disfranchised generation pepped up on post-recession nihilism. Critics hated her, while her fiercely loyal fans, or animals, connected to her outsider spirit and the hits all of them made with Pink and Katy Perry producer Dr. Luke, kept coming. Then, in 2014, the party stopped. Kesha dropped the dollar sign from her name and checked herself into rehab for an eating disorder. Later that year, she filed a lawsuit against Dr. Luke, real name Ukash Gottwald, claiming he had sexually and emotionally abused her over a 10-year period. In 2016, Kesha's case was dismissed, and Gottwald, who has always denied the allegations, sued for defamation. Creatively, Kesha was left in limbo. Still signed to Gottwald's label, Kimosabe Records, an imprint of Sony, she eventually released her third album, the rockier, more inward-looking Rainbow, in 2017. Muzzled in interviews for fear of jeopardizing her ongoing legal case, she managed to hint at her emotional state on the album's lead single, Praying. When I'm finished, they won't even know your name, she sings at one point. But Kesha's early defining songs were pushed through a default filter that read as fun and numb, a sound she felt compelled to return to on 2020's muddled High Road with its partial reclamation of her party girl persona. In stark contrast, the tellingly titled Gag Order, a plain-speaking minimal record 
that touches on death, depression, emotional exploitation, control, hope, and a battle for the truth, sheds so many layers that only the core remains. I realized that I, almost to the point of toxic positivity, was trying to really amplify that playful side of my personality, she says, utilizing, as she does throughout our interview, the language of therapy and self-help teachings. I was doing a disservice to the whole of my being. As the woman who wrote TikTok and the party don't start till I walk in, I didn't think anyone needed or wanted that side of my psyche. I also realized that there's an element of people-pleasing in just trying to give people what they want from me. Kesha credits the zen-like Reuben for creating an environment where she felt comfortable enough to reveal herself emotionally. After a decade of feeling like I'd become a caricature of myself in some ways, he was like, I really want to know what's going on deep inside of you, she says. So he just made this super cozy space where instead of thinking about what other people want or what other people expect or what's going to make other people happy, it was about what truly needs to be excavated from inside of me. Things started slowly, however, with the first three weeks defined by extended emotional purging. I would walk in every day and for approximately two hours, I would cry. And he would just create space, she says. He never once asked me to stop crying or to get it together. It just took me a minute to put a voice to these really unpleasant, embarrassing emotions. I don't want to be seen as weak or fucked up or unhappy because overall in my life, I have all the emotions. If Kesha's early career, publicly at least, was defined by hedonistic abandon. It was also anchored by a fierce honesty in her interviews that set her apart from her more polished contemporaries. So while gag order is deeply raw and emotionally hyper-specific in places, it is disconcerting to be presented with a version of Kesha that has to tread incredibly carefully. Legally, with Gottwald's defamation case to be heard in July, there is a lot she can't talk about and her answers are occasionally euphemistic or stop-start. On Fine Line, the album's defining track, she appears to tackle this head-on. All the doctors and lawyers cut the tongue out of my mouth. I've been hiding my anger, but bitch, look at me now. She sings over rolling piano, distorted screams, and plucked harp. When I mention those lyrics and this disconnect between pure honesty and enforced silence, she shifts to sit upright. A stuffed toy replica made by her mother of her beloved cat, Mr. Peeps, nestled beside her for moral support. This is the first interview she's done for the album, a fact she nervously mentions multiple times, is now brought close to her chest. I wrote the line, I sang the line, so it's only fair I'm going to be questioned about the line, she says slowly. I feel like having to... I feel like... She starts again. Since I was a little kid, I just was so free. And I really do think that's why my fans connected so much to me. Like, this is who I am. I don't really care what you think. It is what it is. And I have almost, like... 
She stops and asks for a moment to collect her thoughts. I have nothing but the truth, she eventually says, the words caught up in a deep sigh. I have that, across the board. To have to run a filter through everything I say is like the way I'm talking now. To have to look at it from so many directions when I have nothing to hide is incredibly exhausting. I ask if the lyrics also have to go through such a legal filter, which immediately seems like a stupid question given how raw and honest she is on the album. So I'm relieved when she refers to her music as a sanctuary and a completely free space. But as we continue to chat about Fine Line and how it lays everything out there, she suddenly circles back. Um, yeah. After the songs are completed, I do have... People do go through it, she says. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I'm always cognizant of the ongoing litigation, even when I'm just telling the truth about how I'm feeling. Hence the title of the album. The sadness of the moment hangs heavy. We each have a purpose of some sort, she says calmly. Not in some religious way at all. I just mean, if you zoom out, the universe doesn't want us to be miserable. It's a sort of spiritual, slightly bohemian take fostered during an upbringing she describes as really wild from the beginning. Kesha was born to a single mom, the singer-songwriter P.B. Siebert, she never knew her dad, and raised on the road, both in L.A. and then later Nashville. Her early life jarred with those of her classmates, and the family often lived off food stamps. The dollar sign in her name was ironic. Later, this meant that Kesha's pop personality was defined by a raw edge and an intriguing sense of outsiderdom. It was always, huh? Are you sure? Me? I grew up on the Stooges. They're my favorite band. So then, to be in the echelon of super pop singers was flattering, but I felt the same way I did in high school, where it was like some people are cheerleaders and I'm the geek who has the weird art band, she laughs. When she moved back to L.A. to sign her deal with Gottwald as a teenager, she spent the first few years partying and living the life she would later write about on debut album Animal. There was a lot of hard work, too, and lots to prove, which is why she won't allow this entire era to be tarred by what's happened. No one should ever take those songs away from me because I made them. I incubated them. I birthed them into the world, she says and I sang them for fucking 15 years. So that's part of me. I remember riding my bicycle from Echo Park to downtown LA, getting on the subway for two hours to Long Beach, and then riding my bike for three miles to producer David Gamson's house. I would see people playing with their own poop on the subway. It was not a cute scene. Then I'd ride my bike up a fucking mountain to get home every day to write some songs. She looks me dead in the eye. That album is mine. I put my heart and soul into it. So of course I look back with mostly affinity. No one can rip that away from me. Her frankness around drinking, partying, and the uselessness of the opposite sex also set the tone for a subsequent era of pop from female artists tinged by hardcore self-annihilation. Think 
Bangers era Miley or I Love It era Charlie XCX. But for Kesha, that rebelliousness soon calcified into a caricature around 2012's Warrior, with critics taking aim at what they saw as vapid lyrics from a singer who needed lashings of autotune. On gag order, however, those raw edges that used to be given a quick studio polish are left unvarnished. It took some getting used to. It got ingrained into me in the younger years of my career that I needed auto-tune, she says. Like, I needed it. So I remember talking to Rick and the engineer and saying, you have to put auto-tune on it. We had a back and forth that blew my mind. They were like, you don't need auto-tune. In my mind, it felt like this mild addiction to this thing that fixed me, almost like a filter on a photo. Rick made space for the imperfections and embraced them almost to the point of making me like the parts of myself that are imperfect. You kind of have these rules that I'm learning are now an illusion. They're bullshit. They're so ingrained. Like, you have to wear a bodysuit and be a certain size and have auto-tune and look perfect and be perfect. All of it is an illusion. So much of Kesha's life over the last three years has been about allowing herself to embrace the darkness, but lighter moments flicker through gag order. On the playful, only love can save us now, a throbbing, gospel-laced, electronic hoedown, she jokes, I'm getting sued because my mom has been tweeting, don't fucking tell me that I'm dealing with reason. While the drama's all-enveloping cacophony dissipates to leave a nursery rhyme-like mantra of, in the next life, I want to come back as a house cat, as a house cat. She is funny, too. When discussing the album's lack of collaborators, outside of an interlude by the late spiritual teacher and guru of modern yoga, Ram Dass, she casually mentions that a friend also appears on the album. He's a wizard who lives outside Seattle. His name is Oberon Zell. Literally, the Wizard of Oz, I say. Yes. She deadpans. When I mention these flashes of humor, her shoulders relax. For me, that's a coping mechanism. Sometimes life is so ludicrous and deranged that it's like you're living in a David Lynch movie. I like to try to make art out of my experiences, even if they're dark, and find humor in it, because what the fuck else am I going to do? Even on the last song on the album, Happy, it's like, I've got to just laugh so I don't die. Around the release of High Road, Kesha was often asked about whether she was happy. On one occasion, she said she was fucking ecstatic to be at a place so far removed from hurt that she could see happiness on the horizon. These recent years, with their pauses, revelations, and spiritual reckonings, have added a note of caution. I have a big year coming up, she says, a nod at July's court case. There's a lot of fear. Happiness is always going to be my goal and something I'm working towards. I have a beautiful family and a bunch of gorgeous cats, and that makes me happy. I have wonderful friends, but I'm in a lot of emotional pain. The whole point of this album is, some things are not okay, and I've been through some stuff that is not okay. She takes a big gulp of water. I feel like I had to be direct with the title and the songs, and with the imagery. That's how I feel. She lets Mr. Peeps go and leans in. 
Sometimes I'm incredibly happy, and then sometimes I have panic attacks. That's the truth. I've been so sick of pretending that everything is all good. That was, I would walk in and just cry for two hours. Kesha on cats, court cases, and her retreat from toxic positivity by Michael Cragg. Read by Hayley McGee. Finally, crowning a new monarch can descend into a farce and be bedeviled with last-minute disasters. Here, Caroline Davies takes us on a historical tour of calamitous coronations gone by. Read by Neve Kuzak. Riots, plague, ceilings raining molten wax, ill-fitting rings. British coronations of yesteryear have not always gone smoothly. William the Conqueror's 1066 coronation occurred just months after the Battle of Hastings at a tense time. There was a new king, and the ruling classes had been ousted by the Normans. But one huge misunderstanding led to pandemonium. During the acclamation and recognition, Norman soldiers outside Westminster Abbey, not familiar with the ceremony, were alarmed to hear all this cheering and shouting from inside, said Charles Farris, historian at Historic Royal Palaces. There is a bit of a panic. They are not sure if foul play is at hand. They start attacking people, setting fire to some buildings. There's a riot. It's recorded almost everybody, except the monks and the churchmen, left the abbey in a panic and started putting out the fires because of this epic misunderstanding. Richard I's in 1189 also led to riots when a group of Jewish people arrived at Westminster Hall to present Richard with gifts and were stopped by a crowd of Christians, according to Ian Lloyd's recently published The Throne an often humorous account of 1,000 years of British coronations. Anti-Semitic riots then spread across the city and throughout the eastern counties of England. There were so many spectators at Edward II's coronation in 1307 that a section of wall behind the abbey's high altar collapsed, killing one knight, Lloyd records. Meanwhile, outbreaks of the plague upset several ceremonies. James VI and I had a much curtailed ceremony due to fear of contagion, while Charles I, in 1626, cancelled his procession due to the pestilence, writes Lloyd. Charles II, since 1661, saw an unseemly squabble between the barons of the Cinque Ports charged with holding the silk canopy above the king's head and the king's footman, One of the job's perks was they got to chop up the banner and each keep a piece. It was probably made from a beautiful cloth of gold, quite an expensive fabric, said Farris. But the barons were challenged by the footmen, who also wanted the canopy. They have this big argument. In the end, the barons win. But because they have been so distracted, they have subsequently lost their positions on the tables in the coronation banquet, so end up having to sit miles away from the king. George II's consort, Queen Caroline, wore so many hired jewels to his 1727 coronation, she noticeably clanked her way through the abbey, 
and a special pulley had to be devised to lift the royal skirt when its occupant needed to kneel in prayer, Lloyd writes. Meanwhile, his grandson, George III, and consort Queen Charlotte in 1761, dispensed with a procession and were transported to the Abbey on his and her sedan chairs, with George's biographer stating they looked like ordinary citizens going to the theatre. No one could find the sword of state, so they improvised, borrowing the Lord Mayor's pearl sword. Everything ran late, and by the time the Archbishop came to deliver his sermon, it was drowned out by the clatter of cutlery and tinkling of glasses as hungry peers fell to eating mid-service, according to Lloyd. George IV's coronation in 1821 was by all accounts the most opulent and extravagant of all, and would be the last coronation banquet. George wanted to outdo Napoleon, whose ceremony a few years previously had been judged magnificent. But so many things went wrong. Caroline of Brunswick, from whom he was separated, tried to get into the abbey but was barred. George himself, eager to let the people see his magnificent regal attire, kept walking ahead of the barons meant to hold the canopy above him, so they had to keep running after him. But the real fun started at his lavish banquet, said Farris, with over 2,000 guests packed into Westminster Hall, watched by thousands more seated on tiered stands. In heat so oppressive, people started to faint. The hall was lit by huge chandeliers. They have got thousands of candles lighting this event but the drip pans underneath the candles are not big enough. And at some point, the ceiling just starts raining molten wax, said Farris. They are dressed in their fine silks and satins with lots of gold thread, and they are getting rained on with wax. There is a comic description of people looking up, and as they do, their faces are getting absolutely splattered, undoing all their makeup. By contrast, George IV's successor, the parsimonious William IV, had such a scaled-down ceremony in 1831 that it was dubbed the half-crownation. Queen Victoria's, in 1838, was under-rehearsed. Her maids of honour kept tripping over their trains, and senior clergy lost their way in the service. One major mishap, though, was that the coronation ring was made for the wrong finger. Something gets lost in translation when they make the request to the goldsmith, said Farris. Intended for the fourth ring finger, the ring was instead made for the little finger. So this ring is too small. When it gets to the part of the ceremony when the Archbishop of Canterbury puts it on the finger, it doesn't fit. But being interested in protocol, he forces it on. Queen Victoria actually writes in her diary later that she had to ice her finger to get it off. And it was very painful. That was Raining Molten Wax, Hungry Peers and Fainting Guests, Coronations of Yore That Went Awry by Caroline Davies. Read by Neve Kuzak. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. 
Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Neve Kuzak and Hayley McGee and presented by me, Savannah Oyode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.